This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Emily Sokol, Director of Research at Excelligent Healthcare Media. I'm joined today by Lana Seiler, Primary Therapist at All Points North Lodge, an evidence-based substance abuse and trauma treatment center. Today, we'll be discussing how to combat mental health stigma and the work All Points North Lodge is doing to break down those barriers. Welcome, Lana. Thank you. So can you start by telling our listeners about the work that you do at All Points North Lodge and the recent survey that you'd conducted about mental health stigma? Yeah, sure. I'm a primary therapist, so my role is mainly clinical direct care with patients. Um, I've been working with this organization for just about two years, coming up on two years now. We like to kind of look at outcomes and also to get some numbers, some data to kind of support what we're doing, because I think that's something that's missing in mental health care in general is making sure that what we're doing is working. Absolutely. So stigma around mental health is something that we talk a lot about. Can you dive into some of the the findings that you've done in your recent work with combating mental health stigma and talking about those conversations? Yeah, sure. So we did an online survey of about a thousand, thousand and one U.S. consumers, 18 and over. And in that survey, we found that over a quarter, 37.2% of Americans are comfortable talking about mental health, but they're not comfortable talking about their own mental health. So it's easier to talk about it in more general terms or about somebody else, which gives a little bit of space between the individual and the mental health issues. Also, um, nearly half, 44.7% of Americans um, have never tried therapy or counseling before. And 30% consider people who struggle with mental health issues to be weak, quote unquote. So it's sort of like a vulnerability or something that's um, kind of looked down upon, which is unfortunate, but we see that a lot. At the same time, Americans are combating incredible escalating mental health issues. Um, 36.7% are experiencing more anxiety, 32.5% more panic attacks, and 27% more depression, especially over the last year. It's been a challenging you know, year at plus for a lot of us. Those are the findings that we have from the survey. And I can speak for myself anecdotally. It lines up with what I'm seeing in practice. It unfortunately, like you were saying, makes sense that you're seeing a rise in anxiety, depression, and a lot of these mental health challenges in light of the pandemic. But I'm really intrigued by that result that individuals were more comfortable talking about mental health generally than their own mental health. Yeah. What sort of recommendations do you have for bridging that gap or are you seeing sort of with your clients to help decrease that distance between the two conversations? Yeah. I mean, you'll hear me say this a lot, but awareness is a big piece, like allowing people to sort of be aware that that's happening individually with my own clients. I'll, I'll even do things like stop people mid sentence and suggest that they move to I statements rather than the general you. Cause I hear people say that a lot or one, you know, you would struggle or one struggles and I'll pause people and say, how about we say I struggled and that's powerful in therapy, but I think it's also powerful in the conversation because going sort of in the line of that other finding that people consider mental health struggles to be in some way different than any other medical struggle. People tend to see it as a weakness. Um, I think it's hard to personalize that and to sort of admit to ourselves and to other people that we may be struggling. And I think that doesn't help the general conversation. 
interestingly enough, there's that correlation, right? If we aren't able to really admit and personalize that we struggle or someone close to us is struggling in our family, then it, it keeps the conversation very removed and it doesn't really help it move forward, I don't think. Right. And I think you articulate really well the example in therapy that you can use with clients and turning to that I statement. What about more for the general public? What recommendations would you give to help sort of begin these conversations about destigmatizing mental health or even just taking taking the steps in the way that we speak mm-hmm. more generally to help move away from this stigma? I think personalizing it, if we know someone who's struggling, if we're struggling ourselves talking about that. I think changing the the verbiage and the language uh, from sort of stigma-based to more strengths-based languaging. Um, Another thing that's helpful is to remove the sort of pathology from the person. So this sounds a little contraindicative because I'm saying now to generalize a little bit, I'll tell you why it's important. So like we'll often say things like an addict or a schizophrenic, right? And so I would suggest maybe shifting it to a person who struggles with schizophrenia, a person who struggles with addiction, because that sort of labeling and that kind of, even unintentionally, it's like a stigmatizing way of of speaking. So I think if we're appropriately describing the struggle as something that a human is struggling with, but it's not something that makes that person who they are, then it's easier to talk about it with ourselves. Also, I feel like mental health is kind of the like forgotten stepchild of medicine sometimes. <laughs> and I say that lovingly to my colleagues who are in medicine because I know that it's it's not intentional. It's not a hard science. I tell my clients all the time, I can't just like draw your blood and be like, oh, yep, this test shows that you're depressed. You know, it's like it's it's different. It involves, you know, a relational aspect to it. And we're not always hitting the bullseye right on because a lot of it's interpretation. You actually set me up really well for my next question, which was, we hear a lot in healthcare about the importance of evidence-based care and with vaccine conversations or hearing more and more about, you know, presenting the evidence, helping people understand the evidence. How do you in the mental health care space balance that need for evidence and potentially not having all of the evidence that you need with also a personalized care approach? That's a great question. It's something that I am always kind of working on personally in my own practice Evidence-based care is hugely important because our field is notoriously difficult to sort of quantify. So we're always trying to find ways to back up what we're doing with evidence. Sort of like I mentioned earlier, we're looking to kind of do more research and and track outcomes at APN. We're, We're really kind of pushing that agenda, not just for right after patients leave us, but for longer term, because we want to keep people in our continuity of care for a longer term. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because I think it's not done enough in mental health. We aren't the only ones who are doing it, thank goodness. And I'm hoping many, many other facilities and agencies start to do that too. Evidence-based care just basically means that it's a modality or a a method of treatment that's been studied and it's been studied reliably. And we can say with some accuracy that this is going to work for this thing. These are more manualized treatments. And that kind of brings me to your second part of the question, which is how do we balance that with individualized care? And you can, Um, I think, you know, the beauty of psychotherapy and group therapy is that there is room for creativity and there is room for individualizing the treatment. 
talk therapy in itself includes and incorporates these evidence-based treatments, but it's not solely that, right? There's also the relational component, which is the therapeutic relationship and rapport. There's unique things that work well for one client that may not for another. Within that space, there's room to do that. I think it's just important that we're not going too far in one direction or another, that I'm not so manualized that I'm coming off like a robot and I'm not so free and creative that I'm doing things that may not be helpful and there's really nothing to show that it is helpful. I think that's really important. It really it also creates safety with any kind of sort of intervention, whether it's more medical intervention, which can be as extreme as open heart surgery or an intervention that we do in the psychotherapeutic realm, um, it's still kind of intrusive. You know, we're intervening on you in some way. And so we need to make sure that that's safe. And that's another reason why evidence-based care is incredibly important. Absolutely. To to shift gears a little bit, I want to talk uh, about the family-based approach at APN. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something unique that your organization offers. Can you describe to our listeners what that is and how that impacts patient outcomes? Absolutely. So I've known a few other places who do pretty strong family care and their success has been great. And we're doing the same thing. And I think when we look at a person in the environment, it gives us much more room to help and to intervene on not just the individual, but what they're going back to. And this is important for substance abuse, as well as mental health and trauma treatment. The needs may be slightly different, but preparing the environment and doing as much as we can to help the environment, quote unquote, the, you know, the family be in a better position to help and assist and be healthier all around, it improves outcomes incredibly because it gives us sort of a window into what this person is going to be involved in when they leave. You know, when they leave treatment, it's really a risky time. It's a shift. It's a transition. Treatment is kind of a safe environment. It's a very controlled environment. And anytime people are stepping down, I'm going over the risks and we're talking about relapse prevention and we're talking about skills-based interacting with their families and their jobs. And, and, And so when we have some time to work with the families, everybody can sort of speak the same language. And everybody's headed in the right direction, ideally in the same direction. Right now we're doing mostly telehealth family work because of, you know, COVID and also just because we get clients from all over the country and sometimes not convenient for people to leave and come to us, even though we are going to be hopefully doing an in-person family program soon. But when we're doing these family therapy sessions and doing kind of intensive telehealth work, I notice because I'm not the family therapist, so I coordinate with them, but I notice huge, huge openings in the work that I'm doing with people individually too, because then they can come to me and say, well, this happened when in our family therapy session, and I don't know how to deal with it, or it's triggering this for me. So in substance abuse, we're looking more at like relapse prevention and making sure the family is prepared to not be, you know, it continuing to enable behavior that's unhelpful for the client. With mental health, we're looking at a lot of surrounding sort of supportive elements, how to help their loved ones, you know, stay on medication regimens and how to help de-escalate if needed. And then in, in trauma treatment, we're all, we're looking a lot at where the origins are of traumas. A lot of times it's generational passed down. And so we can do some work with the families on recognizing their own histories, their own story, their own trauma, and how to sort of navigate those reactions and responses. And then the person in treatment then comes into an environment where everybody's kind of headed toward recovery and healing, which is super helpful. 
almost like that balance that you were talking about between evidence-based and personal, you want a balance between the personal and the family-based care as well. Yeah, it's critical. And then you had mentioned telehealth. So that obviously sparked a, you know, a conversation about the impact of the pandemic. And we had talked at the top of the conversation about how the pandemic has really brought a lot of mental health challenges to light. But talk to me a little bit about the logistics side of things. How did coronavirus and lockdowns impact visits with patients and families? And how did sort of the virtual environment change your interactions? As a therapist, and my clients get kind of frustrated with me, <laughs> like when these hard things happen, I'm always like, this is a great opportunity. Um, and no one likes to hear that, but that's the truth. I mean, I think we've all really shown a lot of resilience. Uh so that being said, we've had to adapt like everyone else. And we've, there were times where we had to switch entirely to telehealth. We've been so fortunate though, where I work that we, you know, just by following the recommended protocols and mandates from the state, we really only had one instance where, you know, we had to quarantine in the residential treatment center. And when we did that, we did everything via telehealth, which, you know, we were able to bring services to the clients with very little interruption, which is wonderful. And I know it hasn't been that way for everybody. So I, I feel fortunate, but I think a lot of us have gotten better at doing therapy on telehealth. You know, it's a little bit of a different skill set, And I have to say, I've seen equal progress working with clients via telehealth than I have in person. There's some differences. And I know a lot of therapists really, really prefer to do in-person work. And, and I do too, for the most part, because you get you know, so much more information in terms of body language and just feeling the energy in the room, being present with your client. But I have to say, you know, that's, I was a yoga teacher before I became a therapist. So I'm very much a body kind of work kind of person. And I start there, but, and so I was terrified that we were going to have to make this big change, but I have to say it's, it hasn't been too much of a hiccup, really. The relationships there, the reports there, that we can do all of the same work that we would do in person. But yeah, it's been an adjustment. So moving forward, what does your ideal environment look like? Is there a mix of virtual and in-person? Because I know there's a really big argument that virtual care can help bring mental health care to people who may not have access to it. Where do you sort of fall in that debate and in your individual practice? What would you like to see? Yeah, it's awesome. It really is. Because there's, and you know, I was just reading this like really dry, large, like 300 page book on ethics and social work practice. But they, in there, there's a lot of talk about people who don't have access to care in rural environments and in smaller communities where there's only a couple therapists and you're, you're struggling with ethical problems, you know, with dual relationships when, you know, you just know everybody because everybody knows everybody. I think this like influx of improvement in telehealth is a godsend for those types of situations. And also, for continuity of care, which I touched on earlier, speaking personally for all points, you know, we get people from all over the country, all over the world sometimes. And continuity of care is something that's been shown evidence-based practice. It's very helpful for outcomes to not, you know, have people drop out of treatment too soon. At least, I mean, six months, there's Surgeon General reports that say a year of continuous treatment is really helpful and beneficial. And we can't do that unless we're doing telehealth. So it's really great to be able to keep people in contact. I mean, I, you know, get to hear from, you know, my colleagues about clients that I worked with months and months ago, and it's wonderful to hear that they're still engaged and if problems come up, they have somebody they trust, you know, it's, it's hard. You open up, you build trust. And if 
if after two, three months or, or 28 days, that's cut off and you have to go to someone else. And then that's only, you know, for a month or two, because that's the step down, you know, and then you have to stop and go to someone else. It's just so, it really can interrupt not for everybody, but for us, we're fortunate that we've built out that telehealth program and we plan to keep it. So your question really was, what's the plan? Yes, we plan to keep it. Even if we're doing mostly inpatient for residential and we're doing in-person family programs and we may open up an in-person intensive outpatient for people who are in the local area. But really, there's been a huge emphasis on maintaining, growing, and improving our telehealth program because it, it helps us stay connected. In a similar vein, how do you see more broadly the conversation around mental health sort of changing in light of the pandemic? I think a lot of people are starting to embrace the virtual telehealth practice. I mean, I can't obviously speak for everyone, but from some of my colleagues who I've talked to who are in different parts of the country, and I think just kind of trends that we've seen, I think people are really loving the fact that they can reach more people, especially those of us have specialties. It's nice to know that we can reach people all over the state that we're licensed to practice in rather than just where we are. Also, agencies like ours are utilizing and I imagine are going to plan to continue to utilize the telehealth services for those same reasons to stay in closer contact with our clients. I think it's wonderful if that spreads so that we have better outcomes all over rather than just in a few places. Absolutely. And the last question that I have for you, Lana, is really big picture, but I'm curious what lasting impacts we'll see as a result of the pandemic and this, I don't want to say increased resurgence of mental health, but this, I, I think mental health is being talked about now more than it ever has before. You know, what do you see as some of the lasting impacts industry-wide really as a result of the pandemic? Gosh, there's so much. So we've seen increases in mental health struggles across the board for a lot of reasons. I think some of that has to do with fear, people being afraid of getting sick, being afraid of their loved ones getting sick. It taps into a very primal sort of part of our response to the world where this feeling of being unsafe, even if it's not entirely cognitive, there's this like more sort of primitive reptilian response that's taking in all the information of unsafety. And I think that's giving us kind of an underlying feeling of anxiety and fear that's kind of bringing on this increase in anxiety and panic attacks. Sometimes people do have extra vulnerability or their loved ones do. And so it's not an irrational fear at all. It's a very real fear and anxiety that can trigger that feeling of unsafe which then can trigger, and this is for every anybody, it can trigger us into you know, trauma responses from other times in our life where we felt unsafe. And then also there's the unintended casualties socially and emotionally on having been isolated. It's depending on where we are in our life stages, having been isolated, kids who are doing school online and in different really kind of pivotal and critical points of their development. And I could go on and on about how much this impacts us, the necessary things we've had to do, which I totally understand why. And that's why I kind of call it an unfortunate casualty because there's, there's an impact. So I think the lasting impacts are going to be in kind of reconnecting, taking an honest look at where we've missed out. And I say that because I think we have a tendency as a society to kind of gloss over 
or not look square in the face of the losses that we experience. I think we try to remove ourselves from them or like quickly, you know, get up and dust ourselves off and say we're fine. But I encourage people to kind of move through this stuff a little more mindfully. So that's, I think, part of the ongoing impacts of this whole pandemic. I'm just touching on a few. There's tons more in terms of what can happen when we're feeling threat, right? People go to anger, people go to fear and sadness, people go to depression and withdrawal. We could talk about this for probably three hours, but that's that's my short answer. Yeah, and I think it's going to be something that we're going to continue to learn more and more about the lasting impacts on this as well. Mm-hmm. Well, awesome. Lana, thank you so much for joining us and for this really meaningful conversation and all of the, the great work you're doing. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And for our listeners, feel free to reach out to us at esokol at extelligentmedia.com. That's E-S-O-K-O-L at extelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts on this topic. You can also use that email address to tell us any healthcare-related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering in an upcoming podcast. We also invite you to go to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars and a positive review if you liked this episode. Thanks for listening. This has been an Extelligent Healthcare Media production. 